Hey everybody, thanks for joining us on Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're up to, including our recap of the Blister Summit, which just concluded in Mount Crested Butte, and a whole bunch of first looks and reviews of bikes, skis, gear, and a whole lot more over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week on the podcast, we've got Darren Murphy from Push on, and for anyone who might not be familiar somehow, he's long been known as one of the best suspension tuners and the guy behind the 11 six rear shock. And he's got a whole lot of good stuff to say about suspension, including Push's design process and a whole lot about how to set up and tune suspension and a whole bunch more. This is a lot of fun and there's a bunch of really good information from Darren in here. So let's get right into our chat. Well, Darren, great to have you on Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks for joining us. How are you today and where are you today? Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am doing outstanding, except for the fact that we've got snow on the ground right now. So I'm at uh, Push headquarters here in Loveland, Colorado, and uh, it's freezing cold um, and some snow on the ground. I just uh, just got back from a trip to California, which was nice and warm. So to come back to a little bit of snow and, and zero degrees this morning was was interesting. Yeah, okay, that'd be a little jarring. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully you guys get melted out there soon and get back on a bike pretty quickly here. Yeah, 100%. So there's a lot to gut through here. Push has been up to a lot of interesting stuff over your history. But before we get into the company itself, I'd be curious to hear just a little bit about your background, both as a mountain biker and as suspension person. And how did you, where did you start with all that? And what kind of first really piqued your interest in suspension tuning and taking all that? as seriously as you do? Yeah, for me, uh, so I started as a, uh, a BMX kid, you know, so when I was uh, growing up, I got introduced to BMX racing and uh, fell in love with it. So for me, the idea of, of uh, riding and racing BMX all day, all night was my sole focus. If I could have just done that and no school and no other responsibilities would, would have been amazing. Um, but yeah, I started uh, racing and riding BMX uh, which then morphed into mountain bikes, like a lot of people. So, you know, as I, as I got a little bit older, so BMX for me started when I was, uh, 12 years old. And then by what, 15, 16, I got introduced to mountain bikes, which was just a, you know, a, a, a cooler vehicle to get me to more places and to explore different types of terrain. And, and, uh, so yeah, I fell in love with mountain bikes uh, at that time, I was living in Millinocket, Maine, a northern Maine town, and uh, out in the middle of nowhere, there weren't really a lot of cyclists. Um, had a good friend of mine that uh, was also a mountain biker, but the two of us were, for the most part, the sole mountain bikers in this particular area. And uh, there was a local uh, local bike shop. Um, this guy, John Raymond, had started a bike shop and was promoting BMX racing and, and just bikes in general. And so I was a shop rat too. So it's like BMX into mountain biking, shop rat, you know, and everything bicycles was my entire focus. Um, and to be honest, John was a big motorcycle guy, right? Raced uh, New England motocross and, and motocross was his thing. And he just had a bunch of motorcycle parts and pieces. And um, I was always fascinated with the dirt bike suspension. You know, I always thought that was so cool, you know, to, to push on it and to sit on them and like, wow, this is really cool. I did, I did a little bit of dirt, dirt bike riding, um, in high school, but not a whole lot. Uh, but I was just fascinated with that. And John had, 
um, old forks and shocks uh, around his shop that uh, I just started to tinker with because it was like, hey, what what are these things? Are you doing anything with them? No. And, you know, like uh, I was always a mechanical take it apart, you know, dissect it, not be able to get it back together type of, you know, young kid. And so, yeah, I just started looking at shocks and taking uh, forks apart. And uh, that's when I first got introduced to it. So I was huge, you know, huge BMX mountain biker, um, but was fascinated with this motorcycle suspension and just, well, motorcycles in general, anything with two wheels, really. Um, and so, yeah, that my first introduction was just taking apart some old Honda shocks and seeing him change out the fork springs in his, uh, his Honda Hurricane 600, you know, he's setting up for track days. And so getting to see the uh, changing out fork springs and oil heights. And, um, I don't know, there was just something about it that to me was fascinating. I just was super interested in that. Um, so then of course, fast forward several years later when mountain bikes get introduced to suspension, you know, it's like marrying my two passions together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty similar trajectory that a lot of people took into just starting off as a kid and one thing builds from there and you know 20 years later whatever you look back and there you are so where did things go from there then to actually founding push kind of what what did the intermediate steps look like yeah so i was uh i lost my dad at a young age to cancer which was uh which was tough um so when i was in uh um high school i didn't really know what my path looked like. You know, I was kind of a, a struggling, struggling teen, um, loved, loved bikes. You know, it was, uh, my passion and my escape. I've always told people that, you know, it was this great thing cause I, I love to do it, but at the same time, it also kind of was my escape from, from life and making those decisions that we all made in high school, which is what am I going to do next? You know, um, being in this small town, I knew that wasn't for me. Uh, I loved reading all the magazines and seeing all the you know, California lifestyle. So that's, that was to me was the ideal dream. So I kind of, uh, I fumbled a little bit and, um, ultimately came across, uh, a guy who worked at Cannondale, this guy, Rick Beasley. And so, um, I met Rick and he was a product manager tech guy at Cannondale that was starting a bike shop in Connecticut. And so, uh, I was super interested in that um, talked to him a little bit about it. And at that time I was getting ready to go to, uh, United Bicycle Institute, the mechanics school. Um, cause I decided that, you know, ultimately college wasn't for me and I wanted to do something with bikes. I wanted to open a bike shop or, or something. So UBI seemed like the natural transition. So I ended up going to UBI. And when I graduated, um, within a couple of weeks, I immediately packed up all my things and moved from Northern Maine to Southern Connecticut, to start uh, a bike shop with, with Ricky and, uh, uh, some other people. And that's, that's what happened. So, um, you know, ultimately, uh, ended up in Connecticut and was there for, you know, almost four years selling bikes, working on bikes. Just for me, it was, it was a dream. It's like, you know, here I, I've made it. I hadn't traveled much. And so for me to go from Northern Maine to Southern Connecticut, it was like, wow, this is it's really a big city and got to go to New York and wow, what a, what an experience that was. But ultimately I was, um, living the dream in the bike shop, which, uh, led to suspension. So mountain bike suspension, front forks started becoming a thing. 
and uh, I got connected with the guys at Marzocchi uh, out in California. And so the short version of the story is um, after working with those guys, talking with those guys a little bit, uh, I ended up going out to Anaheim to Interbike. They invited me out to Interbike where uh, I worked their booth and, and talked to dealers. And uh, at the time we were, I was selling personally kind of invested in Marzocchi as a brand. I was riding the product on my, my bikes. I was selling the product. I was servicing the product through the bike shop in Connecticut. And so going out to Anaheim and Interbike, that was a whole other, you know, huge experience for me. Uh, that went really well. And uh, I ended up going back uh, after that Interbike show. And that's when Marzocchi, uh, this guy, Jim Mahan at Marzocchi, he was the general manager at the time. He, uh, he and I started talking and he said, you know, that was great. We th you should come work at Marzocchi. And uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds, you know, that seems interesting. It's out in California. And um, yeah, so long story short, uh, I accepted a job with Marzocchi, packed up my stuff once again and moved from Connecticut to Marzocchi. And now it was, now it's really living the dream. And what kind of stuff were you doing for Marzocchi? What was your role there? Yeah. So I got hired on to, for just tech support, you know, so just a technician. So, um, what I thought the role was going to be is obviously, you know, move out to California and start, um, servicing suspension. So basically customer, you know, service, warranty, et cetera. And I got out there and it was kind of funny because, um, I was only there for a, a short period before Bryson, who Bryson Martin at the time, who was heading up Marzocchi, uh, hit me up and, and uh, invited me to go with him to the factory in Italy. And it's like, oh, okay, I've barely even been here. And now I'm heading off to, to Italy. That was um, the days of the early days of Bomber. And so that the, the Bomber fork was being developed at that time. And uh, so I went over to the factory, um, uh, got to, you know, see what was going on over there. And, and really I was uh, helping uh, kind of convert the owner's manuals and technical information for the bomber forks. So it was kind of, uh, you know, they're the Italians needed, a, I was kind of like a, a translator, but not really, cause I didn't speak Italian. So it was just kind of, <laughs> you know, fumbling through what they were trying to say and then, um, saying, well, this is how we would say it <laughs> in the U S. Uh, but I didn't have any experience. I was super, you know, looking back, it's funny cause I was so green at the time. And so the fact that I, here I am in Italy, um, was amazing. And, I'm helping to translate, you know, owner's manuals for, for mountain bike forks. And I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm fumbling through it and really, really interesting time. And so from there, that kind of parlayed into, uh, still doing some tech support, but I was on the road a lot. So I was doing, uh, tech support for the races. So back then Norba nationals were really big and, uh, did some world cup uh, events as well. So we had a, a truck and trailer. And so, um, you know, driving that around the country and, and stopping off at the races, setting up the tents, uh, working on racers, you know, forks. Um, and that was really, that was really it. So it was a pretty exciting time in my life to say the least. Got to see, a uh, a lot, not only to the world, but even the United States, right. You got to travel, uh, through the United States and Canada doing all the races and stuff, which was, which was pretty, pretty great. Got to meet a lot of, you know, amazing people. And, um, actually I was just out at, uh, Dave Cullinan's, uh, house, last week, uh, visiting and test riding some bikes. And, you know, he and I were talking about the glory days of, of racing and world championships and met a lot of great people, really great experience, lifelong friends.
yeah, that sounds like just a job where you would get to do a lot of cool stuff, meet a lot of interesting people, go a lot of cool places and do a lot of different stuff. So by that point, you've kind of established yourself with a pretty good background in suspension stuff, obviously. But what did the pathway look like from there to from leaving Marzocchi and eventually starting push kind of what happened next? Yeah, Marzocchi was a great experience, um, uh, learned a lot. And then uh, shortly, I wasn't there for very long before I got approached by um, some people at Ibox Springs. And so Ibach at the time, uh, or still is, you know, kind of the dominant leader for motorsports, um, Coil Springs. And they had started doing work with Mountain Speed products back in the day. So, um, so before it was MRP, it used to be Mountain Speed. And their kind of key product back in the day that launched them was uh, front fork springs for Judy's. And so you'd replace your elastomers with these speed springs, these coil speed springs. And so Ibach uh, didn't know a lot about mountain biking other than these two guys approached them and said, hey, we want to make this fork spring for bicycles. They started doing it. And then the business boomed. And so Ibach was looking at this, this bicycle thing saying, what is going on in the bicycle world? Like, we, Is there more business to be had? Uh, they also had dabbled a bit with motorcycles. And so they're kind of looking at this two-wheeled industry as a real um, strong growth trajectory for the company. So somehow my name got brought up as a, a motorcycle and mountain bike enthusiast. Um, I'm not sure actually how they came across me, to be honest. But they approached me at a race um, and just said, listen, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, when you get back to California, you know, hit us up. Our, I was based out of Valencia at the time, which is north of L.A. They were in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County, uh, south of L.A. So, you know, two and a half, three hour drive or whatever it was. And so that's what I did. So I got back from uh, one of the races. I was in town for a little bit and I drove, met, uh, set up a meeting, drove to Irvine, California and met with the people at Ibach. And Ibach's facility was so incredible, so impressive. And I'm a huge motorsports fan. I love Formula One. I love MotoGP. I love bicycles. I love racing, motocross, supercross, you name it. And Ibach seemed to have their hands in all of it. And uh, that was extremely interesting to me. So I ended up taking a position there um, in research and development. So basically, the way Ibach worked at the time is they had guys on the um, guys and gals on the research and development team, and then we were teamed up with uh, an engineer. And so we would do the development, hand that over to the engineers who would dial everything in um, and get it into production. Um, I had an amazing opportunity to meet a gentleman named John Wills, who was the founder of Suspension Technology Australia. Uh, I think that's what his company's name was. It's been a number of years, obviously. So this is like mid-90s. Um, John was on contract uh, at IBOC to develop um, high-end shock absorbers. John had been involved with Sachs and Bill Stein and you know, these high-end damper companies in, in Europe and uh, did like Ford's motorsport rally program in, in Australia, really involved in, in damper design and development. So he was part of a team that they brought in to develop high-end race dampers at iBox so they could deliver a whole package, dampers and springs for race applications. So he, he didn't have any friends, uh, didn't really know anybody. Um, he and I became pretty good friends. I was single and didn't really have any responsibilities at the time. So I spent a lot of time after hours with John learning about 
shock absorbers and design and development and testing. Um, and so ultimately that led to a role at IBOC where I was actually working with suspension dynos. And so then I learned a lot about the tuning and development. And John was such a resource because he's, you know, at the time, what, 40 years experience, uh, mechanical shock absorber design, you know, so the guy had seen pretty much everything. And so, uh, he and I worked together and, and, uh, hung out together and he was just, uh, he was a wealth of knowledge and was happy to answer any question that I had. And so, uh, if I had a question about something, he'd say, Hey, let's go into the lab and we'd go in, we'd build a shock absorber with a specific characteristic, run it on the dyno, really understand what it was that we were doing. Uh, and for months and months, that's what I did. And so it was, it was my PhD in shock absorber. So I, while I, while I am not a mechanical engineer, uh, I did get a pretty focused um, kind of training and experience from, you know, world leader in, in design. And so that's where I that's where I learned everything. And uh, then I started to look at bicycles and said, okay, man, if I could take some of this high end motorsports technology and adapt it to my passion, which is mountain bikes, what would that look at look like? And so that's when the kind of the idea of push, I didn't have a name for the company, but the idea of kind of blending those two things uh, started in those, those early IBOC days. I mean, particularly given that sort of around then mountain bike suspension was relatively speaking in its infancy, a lot of what was happening was being borrowed from motorsports and motorcycles, especially. And a lot of, a lot of people who were kind of moving the needle on bike suspension back then were coming from a similar background of coming from that world and going, well, how do I apply this to bikes? So when did you actually launch push and what were your initial goals for the company? Kind of where, what did you see as being the first place you could kind of make your entry into the bike market with push? Yeah. So that was, that was mid the Ibach days were mid nineties, mid to going into the late nineties. Um, I had the opportunity to, um, kind of, do my own, uh, my own thing with, uh, two partners. We started a company called Chuck bikes in the late nineties. Uh, I guess the company, no, I take that back. The company was already started. Um, they already had kind of a prototype hardtail, but I met these two guys and, um, they had this idea for Chuck bikes and they didn't have any technical background. And anyway, long story short, uh, I joined that team as kind of a, here's my first, entrepreneurial experience, uh, with Chuck. So that's late nineties. We kind of did the Chuck thing and that, that morphed into something, another, another business. So I kind of had these couple experiences with being a partner in a business for a few years. So late nineties into early two thousands. And it was pretty bumpy. It was, a uh, you know, both businesses were pretty bumpy. I'll just put it that way. And so, uh, it really came down to the second business. I was struggling a lot and always had this idea, this, this concept of the suspension tuning. And again, kind of taking the high end motorsports and combining it with mountain bikes. And, uh, after, you know, a number of frustrations and conversations with my wife, she's the one that kind of, uh, tipped me into like, you just need to do this, this tuning thing you keep talking about, like this tuning business with no partners, like you just need to do it. Cause you know, you, you have this desire to, to do this business. You've had partners that have been kind of in your way or not on the same kind of plane as you, which ultimately led to me saying, yeah, let's do it. And so that was 
um, would have been the first of 2003. So January, February of 2003, we started talking seriously about it. And by October of 2003, we had signed the papers on a small industrial unit in Irvine, California, and had come up with the name Push uh, for this suspension tuning company that I was about to launch. And uh, so that's what happened. So kind of two bumpy uh, small businesses uh, ultimately led to me going out on my own and uh, starting Push in late 2003, tuning, uh, coming up with a product line where we were going to... Um, take that motorsports uh, technology and build it into, at the time it was Fox Vanilla uh, RC shock absorbers. And that was the, that was the first thing we did and we were off to the races and I was super scared and super excited at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And so what more specifically were you doing to those early vanillas kind of, what did you see as the opportunity to improve upon there? Well, uh, to be honest, I got the timing was really, really good because Fox had just um, come out with Pro Pedal. So Fox had just come out with their first Pro Pedal system, which was basically that platform type damping style that gave you some efficiency when you were pedaling and then would uh, blow open when you hit bumps. So that's kind of what Pro Pedal was. And so um, I designed uh, some upgrade components. So my own, uh, seal housings and, um, damping pistons and, and valves. And the whole point of those parts was so that I could tune different characteristics. So with the stock pistons, um, sometimes you're limited as to what kind of characteristic you can get out of them. And so I was designing and having a local machine shop machine, uh, these pistons and valves for me so that I could change the characteristics of the shock. So if you were, you know, aggressive downhill rider versus a trail rider, because um, that, that was back in the day when there wasn't a lot of suspension, right? Fox had one air shock or maybe two air shocks and two coil shocks and um, didn't even have front forks yet. And so, because those came, I think, in 2004, or 2005. But anyway, so that I was started out with, with those components to be able to tune but then I also uh, machined the parts to be able to adapt older shocks to Pro Pedal. So you didn't have to buy a new shock to get this cool Pro Pedal feature. You could get take your Vanilla R or your Vanilla RC from 2002, 2003, 2001, etc. And I could, I could install my version of Pro Pedal, which was sort of a reverse engineered version of theirs. It's it's just called uh, digressive damping. It's not a it's it's not something they invented necessarily. So anyway, so that was my big thing is the timing was just right because Pro Pedal had been introduced and you had all of these mountain bikes on the market that didn't have it, and you could send it to push. And I think back in that day, I think I charged one hundred and fifty nine dollars um, for the first Vanilla RCs. So for one hundred and fifty nine dollars, you get a full service get the pro pedal upgrade and get all the cool valving and um, tuning options as well. And uh, yeah, it was, it was the right place at the right time. I will, it was, it was good timing. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> and so that's how we, that's, that was the, what we, what we did or what I did is just uh tuned Fox coil shocks. Yeah. Sometimes just right place, right time is what you need to, to make something work. And where did things go from there? I mean, push obviously grew a lot and somewhere along the line, you moved to Colorado. Take us through what the next bit looked like. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, 2003, coming into 2004, Richard Cunningham, who was at Mountain Bike Action at the time. This was you know, pre-internet for the most part. So getting a copy of Bike Magazine or Mountain Bike Action and was a big deal. So Richard did a feature on Push in 2004, and that really, things took off. Then people knew who we were. So 2004, things started cooking. Uh, I think late 2004 is when I brought in my first employee to help out. So I had a service, another service guy um, who now still works in the industry. This guy, Jimmy Donahue, who's, who's a, a guy, rear shock guy down at uh, Rock Shocks these days. Still, still a good, good buddy of mine. But Jimmy came on board and then 2005 um, was when we ultimately moved to Colorado. So my wife and I were um, young parents and had always daydreamed about, I, I always tell people Southern California, because we were living in Orange County uh, at the time. When you're single and have a good job, it's it's great experience. When you get married, things change a little bit. When you have kids, things change yet again. And so we'd kind of daydreamed about um, moving out of California. And the business was growing, the housing market was booming, and we kind of used uh, that as an opportunity to look around at other places, stumbled upon Fort Collins, Colorado, as being a cool place to live, and didn't really put a lot of thought into it. Ultimately, packed everything up. Uh, Jimmy and uh, his girlfriend at the time agreed to you know, move out to Colorado. And so in early 2005, we made our way to uh, Fort Collins and ultimately found a small shop in, in Loveland. Well, I say a small shop. We moved from about a, what, 800 square feet into like 1500 square feet, which at the time for two people, it seemed, and it had really high ceilings. And it was like, wow, look at this. This is an amazing place. So that was, uh, yes, yeah, so early 2005, we moved to Colorado for really quality of life because Push was a company where as long as the shipping trucks uh, arrived, we could be anywhere in the, in the country, really. And Colorado was kind of centralized. It's obviously a mountain bike mecca, quality of life-wise, you know, amazing place to live. Um, and yeah, we haven't looked back. It's It's been incredible. And it's really allowed us to grow the company. You know, I mean, things have, have changed dramatically uh, over the years. And within a short period, like by 2008, we had, I think, like seven full-time technicians and we're servicing approximately 8,000 Fox Forks and Shocks a year. So it it become quite a beast at that point. Yeah, that's a lot of products to be moving through and working hands on. And we'll kind of maybe fast forward a little bit here, but you, you know, pushed, like you said, kept growing and you had a f varying range of suspension tuning products and a lot of service options that were available for quite a while. And then somewhere in there, you decided that you were going to move beyond just doing the tuning side of things and launch your own rear shock. So, and that was the 11.6 that has evolved a fair bit since then, but still have a version of it on in the product line. And I guess there's a, there are a bunch of uh, sort of bits of technology in that, that are a bit different than most of what's on the market. So sort of take us through one, what's different about the 11.6 and then also just what your goals for it were and what you saw as the way to differentiate it from a bunch of the other high-end stuff that was out there. Yeah, it really started because our tuning business had grown to the point where our lead times were quite long. 
And so we had a number of customers who would ask us, hey, instead of sending in my Fox Shock to you guys or my Fox Fork, can I just buy one from you that's already been serviced and tuned? Um, the rear shocks were more common. We, we definitely got a lot of requests for front forks. But with the rear shocks, people were like, hey, I'd just like to buy a, a Fox Float RP23 from you that already is set up at brand new. And I'll just take my, ex- my other one, put it in a toolbox and use it as a spare for when I have to send it in for service. You know, it made sense. And so we tried to we tried to get that to work. And um, we actually did it with RockShox for a short period. Um, it was sort of successful, but we had some bumps in the road there. And it was tough, you know, navigating that with a manufacturer, you know, like buying their product and then converting it and then shipping it out. And the warranty responsibilities or recall responsibilities of a product, you know, it, it, it became kind of tough. So it, it was good, but not great. And our hands always felt a little bit tied. And so that idea of being able to deliver a, a, a custom tuned product to the customer was always something we wanted to do. And we just tried to, we couldn't figure out how to do it. And ultimately, uh, we were, you know, we had all kinds of hop-ups at the time. And one of them was our, what's called our MX tune. It was a kit where we adapted a Fox coil shock to have high and low speed, uh, external compression adjustment, uh, damper piston, bottoming bumpers. It had a bunch of different things. And, um, I had an idea for this, uh, a, um, a dual valve version because, um, I just got a Santa Cruz nomad. So I, I was on one of the early nomads and through our, through our deal with Santa Cruz syndicate. So when we first started working with syndicate, um, and Rob Roscop and those guys, uh, we kind of heard about this nomad and Rob sent one to me and it's like, Whoa, this is a, the nomad was a great bike. That first, that first generation, it was pretty transformative, right? It was like when it showed up, wow, this is, this is a unique bike and great for Colorado and the terrain that we had. But the negative was I loved coil shocks and riding the nomad with that much travel. Um, it was a bit of a compromise and I didn't like lockout levers or, um, the pro pedal levers and stuff because you couldn't adjust them. So I'd come up with this idea for this dual valve system, uh, specifically for the nomad. I was like, Hey, we'll do a dual valve version of the MX tune. So we could have two different settings. So when you're climbing or riding flat terrain or smoother terrain, you can have one setup. And then if you're going to do some chundry DH, you can flip this lever and have a whole different shock. That was the idea. And so, um, I thought that the dual valve concept was significant enough that I didn't want to put it on somebody else's product. It's like, no, this would be great if we could build this. And at the time we were manufacturing, we, we had purchased two CNC machines. And so instead of outsourcing our manufacturing, we had now started to do, um, uh, machining in house for the first time. So we had a Haas, uh, mill and a Haas lathe. And we're making our own pistons and valves and shafts and we were doing all kinds of stuff. And so the idea of like building our own shock and being able to deliver that product to the customer, which is here is a pre-configured ready to ride out of the box shock, which is what people were looking for. But if we were going to do it, I was going to do it formula one style, which was just sky's the limit. Um, that was the concept anyway. It's, it started with, a couple of different test mules. Actually, we started building some prototype shocks. We, well, first we built the dual valve system and stuck it on a Fox shock and it worked. Um, and it worked the first, first shot, which was 
almost never happens. And so we built that first prototype, put it on a Fox shock and the dual valve system worked. And I was like, well, okay, now I'm really committed because it, this thing's cool. <laughs> really like this. Um, but that was the idea. The, the idea for the 11.6 was to, to marry our tuning business with a completed product. And so give that customer something that's got the right spring rate, got the right damping, has the clicker settings where it needs to be. Like literally, take it out of the box, put it on your bike and go ride it. Now, after the fact, you can make fine tuning adjustments, but we wanted to build something out of the box that you could ride because suspension, as everyone knows, has become so uh, complex and hard to understand. And when do I turn low speed? When do I turn high speed? What do I do with rebound? Preload, spring, tokens, all of this stuff. And so uh, we wanted to make it, you know, the easiest way to upgrade your rear suspension without knowing anything about rear suspension. That was kind of the, kind of the concept. So, um, yeah, after a bunch of prototyping and efforts, um, and then looking at production, we ultimately, uh, in what early 2015, um, came to market with our first rear shock, which was the original, uh, 11.6 and our tuning business quickly went away after that. That all kind of makes a bunch of sense. You had this idea that, and you really wanted to be able to put it into a flagship product rather than kind of grafting it onto someone else's, but I'd be curious to hear a bit more about the dual valve concept, because I think a lot of people are used to the idea of having a high end, very tunable shock and then have a climb mode on it that is not adjustable in the same way. And the the notion of having these two fully separate valving circuits with their own independent adjusters that you can toggle between and the idea of having something that is very simple in some ways and set up out of the box are at least arguably in some ways a little bit in tension with each other right you have this you, it, it is in some ways a more complicated shock for having that that system and so how do you generally think about setting up the two separate circuits in relation to each other and kind of what are the the goals of having these two separate circuits that are more adjustable than the climb mode on a, a typical shock and how those two interplay with each other and how you choose between the different kinds of ways that you could configure both of them separately to work together as two separate options on the same shock. Yeah. So the, 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 the basic idea is like I said, just having two shocks in one, right? Imagine if you had two separate shocks set up in two different ways. Um, so based on the type of riding you were going to use, um, you know, so if you're going to go do a bunch of lift access stuff at, you know, for us like winter park or Keystone or something like that on your, you know, big travel bike, uh, you'll want to have something that's set up for, you know, traction and big chundry stuff, etc. And so then you come back to your local trails or say you go to Moab to ride Slick Rock, which is like a completely different, uh, trail setup. Um, imagine if you had a shock that, oh, this one's, this one is what you ride at Slick Rock. So you could just switch it out on your bike. Well, that's the base concept. The base concept is instead of having multiple shocks, having an air shock for this and a coil shock for that or whatever, um, that you can have a single shock that has two completely different characteristics. Um, you can have one that's uh, set up for fast, flowy jump pump line trails and one that's set up for chundery DH. You can have one that's set up for a firm climb mode for, for people who generally, like a lot of requests are, uh, say, for guys who ride single speeds and then have a full suspension bike. And so they're used to standing and climbing a lot. And so their their tune or their expectation is different than 
someone who's been on big long travel bikes like myself for a, a lot of years. And so sit, sitting and spinning is, you know, my happy place. So that's the base concept. And so we've given complete. So the, the idea is to not only have two shocks in one, but instead of having to send it to a tuner to have it tuned, we give the, the end user the controls to set it up any way they like. Um, and it's all done with your fingers. There's no tools necessary. And so the way it works is um, we ship all the shocks. As we've grown, we've had to change things a little bit. So t today with the 11.6, we ship you a shock with two preset characteristics. Um, so we kind of have a descend mode and a climb mode. And so every shock comes out of the box. So if you buy a shock from us, the rebound has been set to the correct position. The high-low speed settings for both valves has been set to the correct position. Your preload, your spring rate, everything's set up. Mounting hardware is installed. Everything is done for that bike. Our engineering team does an amazing job of getting every single bike and analyzing everything and coming up with all these settings. So it comes out of the box in one way. And then if you go to our website under the support tab, we have an 11.6 uh, tuning um, page where you just select by your make and your model of bike. And it, and it gives you a complete guide as to setup. So if you get your shock and you're like, hey, I want to have, again, like that fast flowy pump jump line setup. You don't have to know anything about compression damping. You don't have to know why low speed versus high speed. We give you a guide that just says, put the settings into this position. So, hey, valve number two, low speed at, you know, nine out, high speed at 14 out or whatever the numbers are. And you'll get that characteristic out of the shock. And so, uh, again, it's, it's custom built for your application and for you as a rider. And then you have the tuning tools at your fingertips and our website kind of cheat guide to use to set it up and try different things. Um, the other thing that's unusual about 11.6 is Monday through Friday. Here in the U.S., we have Monday through Friday, um, 9 to 5 tech support. So phone call, we publish our phone number. We publish our email and we have full online chat all day long. So if you're you know, most comfortable phone, email, chat, whichever you'd prefer, you can talk to uh, tech people on your setup. You can explain to them like, hey, I've tried these settings on your website, I'm looking for a little bit more, et cetera. So it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's, it's an all-inclusive type of thing. Our program is to deliver, like I said, um, it's the fastest way to upgrading your suspension without knowing how to upgrade your suspension. You know, we do all the work, um, and let you get out and ride your bike. That's, that's the big deal. So there's a bunch to unpack there and we'll get a little bit more into the setup and tuning for specific bikes in a minute, but I'd be curious to hear more about, let's say you have two different riders who are of similar weight and whatnot. So we're not including that as a variable who are riding the same bike. How but they have sort of very different desired kind of configurations for the two different settings. How much are you doing different internal valving for those two different riders? Perhaps it's like, say you have one, one person who wants a kind of very firm climb mode as one of their two options. And the other person is doing something more like what you described of having their rough chundery bike park trail mode and their slick rock mode. Just, to run with that example are you accomplishing most of those differences with the external adjustments or would you actually be doing substantially different internal valving for those two different people so in that scenario most of it is done externally so the way it works is um and the, one of the reasons why our fitment list is 
so short. You know, people ask us all the time, like, why don't you just fit every bike? And it's because we don't sell the 11.6 in length and stroke. It's, it's specific to bike. So what we do is we get every single bike from the manufacturer and our engineering team goes through and has a whole process of vetting that bike, testing that bike, et cetera, coming up with all the different configurations, analyzing the kinematics. So the majority of what 11.6 represents is a shock that was built around that bike's um, specific characteristic and the intended use of the bike. So what we'll do is, um, you know, for instance, so if, if you have uh, one bike that has a 14% rising rate and another bike that has a 30% rising rate, we'll change the hydraulic you know, bottoming characteristic. We can change the rod bumper densities and, and lengths. So we can have the bike that has a lower percentage of rising rate. We'll have a more aggressive bottoming system built into it uh, versus the one that has a higher rising rate where you're getting more mechanical bottoming control from the linkage or the frame. Uh, in that case, we'll use a softer or more linear uh, bottoming system. So the majority of what we do is, is getting that shock, the damping piston, the compression valves, the, the bottoming system, um, all of that stuff so that it's optimized around that frame's kinematic or characteristic and its intended use. We include the manufacturers um, most often in these uh, in the tests and setups. We love to send them our, our samples before we go to market with it just to get their feedback too, which has been extremely valuable. Um, so everybody's kind of on the same page and doesn't void warranty and bolts up slick and all of that type of stuff. So what we'll do is, um, so we'll go through that process and come up with, you know, the base spec for what this, what the, um, the characteristic for the bike and to cover different rider weights, we'll have two, three, four, five different spec models for that bike. So if we look at, um, you know, like a Santa Cruz mega tower, we'll have three different damper configurations to cover 12 spring rates, which will cover rider weights from say 110 pounds up to 245 pounds. I'm, those aren't exact, but <laughs> yeah. So, um, so from 110 to say 180 pounds, it'll be this damper specification from one, or that's probably too broad. So maybe a 110 to 160 and then say 160 to 200 is this damper. And then from 200 to 240, it's, it's a third damper. So we change the rebound compression characteristics again, based on rider weight, spring rate range, etc. So all that work is done by us so that the rider doesn't have to do any of that. And so what that allows us to do is it allows us to really fine tune to say a 40 pound rider weight, um, the overall characteristic of the shock, giving now the external fine tuning controls to get people what they want. One thing that is unique too that we do is the dual valves are different. So if you were to set the adjusters into the exact same position and toggle between them, the ride characters characteristic would be different. And we do that because valve number one or the softer valve, we want we always want it to have um, a more um, linear to progressive characteristic for, you know, so that it can accommodate really good traction and big hit control, et cetera, because that's most, mostly like the, the DH mode. Um, and then the second valve is actually machined differently. So it's not just the valving. It's actually a different uh, machined part that's inside there. And the flow rate's different and the characteristic's different. And so with that valve, we can create both uh, what's called digressive characteristics um, or linear characteristics. And so that allows us to have that valve um, 
the digressive characteristics characteristics give us that um, kind of platform feel or climbing, you know, like the firm climbing feel that riders want. And then when we go to a more linear characteristic, but with a different flow rate, it allows us to get those, um, you know, fast flowy pump jump line. Uh, if you've watched Red Bull Rampage this past year, Sorgi riding his evil with an 11.6, he runs that second valve, the firmer valve with a more linear characteristic. So between the two valves, with them being actually different flow rates, we're really able to uh, broaden the range that we can get out of those two controls. And so, um, again, if, if someone wants a is a single speeder and wants that firm climb, it's a 140 travel, you know, 29 or full suspension bike, wants a, a, a firmer out of the saddle climbing mode, we can make that characteristic very digressive. Um, or if someone's on that same trail bike and is riding the Pacific Northwest with all kinds of flowy, bermy jumps and stuff like that, we can we have a setting that they can use uh, for that. And with all of that said, if uh, it's a small percentage of riders for sure, but for riders that are outside, that, that go through that process and say, hey, I, I'm looking for something even a little bit more, they can send it back to us or any one of our global service centers. And we have a huge roadmap for our technicians to use to, to tweak it even more. So while we might have three or four production um, characteristics or builds that we send out into the aftermarket, the range is almost unlimited on top of that. So if you have a, if you've exhausted with our tech support on setup and settings and you just need, you know, you're a Mike Giese or a Kurt Sorge, you know, those, those types of riders looking for something different, we have all kinds of tools in our toolbox. And so you can ship it back to us and we can, we can dial that in for you to an nth degree to whatever you're looking. We can get you whatever you're looking for. That's for sure. That was a really good answer, though. I do think one thing that would be helpful for some people probably is fill us in a little more on what you mean by a digressive damping setup versus a linear one. Yeah. So digressive um, is a characteristic that's been widely used in the mountain bike industry and in race cars uh, to where you kind of have to, there's a lot of compression damping initially. So you kind of have to hit this threshold before the shock really starts to move freely. And so a digressive characteristic or you know, like pro pedal or platform damping, these are all kind of interchangeable terms, is one where um, you have to kind of achieve a certain amount of force at real low suspension velocities. So a real small, low shock movement, you have to overcome a certain force before the shock really starts to move. And so that's digressive. So you can imagine for, uh, again, someone who likes to stand and climb, having a threshold. So when they're standing and climbing, mashing on the pedals, having this threshold that's keep preventing the suspension from having excessive movement or excessive bob is really nice. But then if you, you know, hit a G out or a bump or something like that, while you're climbing, you still want to have some compliance. You still want it to move. So that threshold is set and then you hit that G out and all of a sudden, oh, it exceeds the threshold. The suspension opens up, starts to move. Um, everything feels more comfortable. And then you get right back into the climb and it firms back up. So that's that's what we refer to as digressive damping, which is kind of a threshold is reached, the shock opens up, and then uh, once it settles back down, the threshold kind of turns back on. Yeah, I think that was probably helpful for some, for some folks. So thanks for that. To get back into the tuning of the 11.6, though. So like you said, you only offer it for a fairly limited list of bikes because, like you said, you're really aiming to not have a one-size-fits-all application rather setting things up for a given bike and its kinematics and intended use and all the rest 
tell us a little bit more about what goes into developing the set of tunes that you eventually offer for a given bike and also a little more about what you look for in a bike that you are considering adding into the list of options that you offer. Yeah, for sure. Um, and this is one of the things, you know, we get, we get beat up quite a bit by (laughs) all the bikes that we don't fit. Uh, and just so everybody knows out there, uh, the process is it generally takes, um, each bike takes four to six weeks to complete. And so, um, we're still a relatively small team of people. Uh, we do everything here at our, our facility here in Colorado. So it's about a four to six week process. It starts off with us, um, you know, it's requests, right? People requesting bikes. And actually, uh, later this week, we have a request form that's going to be up on our website. We're going to allow people to basically submit bikes that they're interested in so we can gauge which bikes to focus our time on because we can't do all of them. So we're, we're always trying to maximize that. So it starts off with, hey, this bike is really interesting. And then we talk to the manufacturer and we basically need to meet a minimum requirement for rising rate which most bikes meet these days because modern air shocks have become so linear in their air spring characteristics. So the air spring characteristic and coil spring characteristic are so, so much more similar these days that most bikes are rising rate. The days of uh, flat or linear leverage rates or falling leverage rates are, are less and less all of the time. But we like to see a minimum uh, rising rate of 6%. And so once we verify okay, the kinematic, it's got six or more percent rising rate. We'll look at it. And so we'll get the bike from the manufacturer. We ride it stock. So we just get it and we ride it stock and we try to get the most out of tuning the suspension, stock suspension. Because obviously the expectation for someone who buys an 11.6, it can't be something where you put it on the bike and it's like, oh, this is pretty good. It has to be at the price point. um, It has to be the best rear suspension you've ever purchased. So it's in our best interest to tweak the stock suspension to get the most out of it, right? To get it to be the best it can be. So we'll do that first. And then based on that uh, ride information, we'll start to build two or three uh, prototype spec dampers and start dialing in the damper spec and uh, spring rates. We use seat of a seat of your pants, you know, um, testing. We also uh, equip the bikes with onboard data logging systems. So we have some really advanced onboard computer systems that measure whatever you want to measure. Um, ours are, um, uh, motorsports based data loggers. And so you can measure wheel speed, brake pressure, you know, crank RPM, suspension, velocity, travel, whatever you want to, whatever you want to measure rider heart rate, if you want to. And so, um, so then we'll, we'll do that. So we'll go through that process of analyzing the stock suspension, um, our prototype suspension and back and forth a bit uh, with different configurations and different test riders to kind of get a feel for, you know, where we're at. Um, a lot of times, like I said, once we get to the point where we finalize what we think is, is the good spec, we'll send a shock back to the manufacturer, to their engineering team or R&D team, product managers, et cetera, for them to ride it and give us feedback. And so, because we always like the manufacturer's feedback because obviously they really know the intended use. They really know what they, how they wanted their specific bike to perform. And so, uh, yeah, we'll get some feedback from them. And then not that ultimately leads to us coming up with the final, you know, those final damper specs and the final spring rate guides and the settings and how we're going to, you know, use the bike, et cetera. And so that process, like I said, unfortunately takes us four to six weeks, which is why our application list is limited 
but it's also what allows us to deliver that product, which is ready to ride right out of the box. Are there too many other things that you kind of look for as a criteria for a bike other than the minimum 6% rising rate that you described? I mean, obviously, there are probably some clearance considerations on certain bikes and just physically fitting the shock in there. But is that kind of the main stuff? Yeah. And, and most of the times, uh, again, we work so closely with the manufacturers these days. We have what's called a 3D um, clearance file pack. And so what we do is we all of our 3D CAD models um, with the the biggest springs, et cetera, we send those 3D uh, files to the manufacturers so they can verify fitment. So before we even get a bike, we'll send um, you know, the shot, the 3D clearance files over to Specialized and their engineers will run through the fitment process and, and give us any clearance concerns or you know, thumbs up like there's no clearance concerns, et cetera. So we do that before we get the bikes um, just to make sure there's, there's no clearance issues. Um, but we also, you know, it's also because of tire sizes and different things. We always like to look at all the details, but yeah, part of that process is it's, it's clearance, fitment, adjustability, reach, you know, like how easy is it to access the levers? Um, there's, there's certain bikes where we have, you know, we do have different configurations for the head unit, what we call the head unit. So where the valves are positioned or the levers positioned. So we have different configurations based on, on fitment of bikes. So yeah, it, we truly do make a, um, the shocks specific, you know, to optimize it for the bike. To move on from the 11.6 specifically, I guess I'd be curious to hear some of your general thoughts on suspension tuning, not necessarily of your products, but kind of more broadly and generally speaking. What do you think are kind of some of the biggest mistakes that people most commonly make in setting up their own suspension? And if you were, I would assume that you do a fair bit of testing and benchmarking of everyone else's stuff that's out there too. How do you approach starting to set up something brand new from, from the square one? If you kind of haven't been on it before and don't really have much of a baseline to begin with. So, um, for sure. I mean, I've, I've said this a number of times, uh, for me, probably the number one, um, tuning mistake I see in the bicycle industry is when people feel that the suspension is harsh or, um, rough chattery, you know, uh, they tend to soften it. And that generally is the wrong direction. Um, so I would say that more than 90% of the time harshness comes from the suspension being too soft. And that's because, um, you know, I, I kind of use this analogy. If you were to stand over the top tube of your bike and push the first inch of travel of your front fork, right. Just kind of push on the first inch. It's like, Oh, you can push through that first inch really, really easily. Well, if you now try to push deep into the four inch mark consistently, like, Hey, it's like, Whoa, it's a lot more resistance, right? The spring's starting to get progressive. There's just a lot more going on, um, when you get deeper into the stroke. And so a lot of harshness comes from the bike's active ride height. So even though you've measured sag and say you're at 30% sag or whatever, that's like a, that's your sort of static sag and, and based on standing, seating, seat angles, seat, um, um, seat length, all of our seat, um, seat post length, all of those things affect the leverage on the suspension and your sag, etc. And so one of the benefits we have is with using those data logging devices that we see active sag, we get to see what the actual ride head is when you're out on the bike, which is totally different. And so I think that, um, the idea of stiffening suspension when it feels harsh 
hurts people's heads. You know, it's so counterintuitive. It's like, no, it's harsh. It, I need to soften it. And generally, a lot of times, stiffening the suspension uh, puts it at the uh, higher end of the travel, so it's at the top end of the travel, which is more compliant, has less um, progressivity, whether it's linkage, whether it's an air spring, um, et cetera. So by stiffening the suspension, a lot of times it makes it ride higher in the travel, which is the softer zone to start with. And it also tends to make the suspension not go as deep onto the backside of a bump, right? So imagine if you're going into a bunch of bumps, if the suspension has a lot of movement, then it's, it's like falling, you know, big extension, big compression, big extension, big compression. And whereas if you're running a little bit stiffer, you go, you kind of skim over the top of those bumps. And so instead of the wheel tracking the entire ground um, and having a lot of movement, a lot of chassis movement, et cetera, you're actually just staying kind of on top of the bumps. And so the, what we call the bump duration, the, the time at which the wheel is um, in the bump is less and it causes, causes the suspension to be less harsh. And you can measure it. We have G meters that you can put on the handlebars and on the swing arm, and you can actually measure acceleration and G-force. And it's it's pretty trippy that you can stiffen your suspension to make it less harsh. So there's there's your tip on that one. Yep, I am fully with you on that one. Though to clarify a little bit, when you say stiffening the suspension, are you talking more about spring rate or compression damping or some combination thereof? Yeah, combination thereof, um, which leads to that second part of the question, which is setup. You know, the, I think, um, there's also, it's a little bit backwards sometimes in the bike industry. So when it comes to setting up your suspension, you know, it's always spring rate first, right? Whether it's air pressure or your actual coil spring, spring rate controls the ride height and bottoming characteristic of your suspension. So getting that right initially is, is the most important part. The next step, a lot of people move on to rebound next to control the spring. And that's in my opinion, not the correct, well, Generally speaking, suspension tuning outside the bicycle industry is spring rate, compression damping, rebound damping. That's kind of the, the process that you go through. Because obviously the idea is that you're going to actually impact or have to absorb a bump before you have to have the spring extend. And so, um, and the the rate or the, yeah, the rate or the amount of compression you get in the suspension determines how much rebound you need. So uh, like I was just mentioning, you know, if you have a suspension that's staying on top of the bumps, you know, it has a little bit firmer, it's staying on top of the bumps, obviously having a little bit slower rebound, it balances everything out. Whereas if you have a suspension that's soft and it is using a lot of travel and it's going in and out of the bumps and falling into the holes, you need the rebound speed to be um, faster so that the fork can react or the fork or shock can extend and, and react to the next bump quicker. So the compression characteristic determines how much travel you're going to use, which determines how much rebound is going to be necessary. And so that's why spring rate first, get your ride height and bottoming control, overall bottoming control set. Then your compression to control um, how much, you know, the rate at which the suspension is going to compress, how it's going to handle, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, like ripping through single track side to side or under braking, et cetera, the compression controls all of that. So you don't want it to be wallowy. Um, you don't want it to have a bunch of dive under braking um, or squat when you're pedaling. And so then once you get that dialed in, now the rebound is, is going to control whatever you've just set up. And so, again, if you've got a soft and uh, compliant setup, which here's the other thing I want to say. There is no right or wrong. Um, I've said this a number of times too. 
if a suspension tuner or a suspension company is trying to say, no, this is the way to set it up, uh, no, it's, it's however, however you prefer it is the way to set it up. It's suspension is completely subjective. And so there is no right or wrong. So if you want a, a soft compliant ride that we're using a lot of suspension travel, yeah, then your rebound is going to be set differently. If you're using the compression damping to control that movement uh, a bit more and have a firmer, um, more racy setup, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but your rebound characteristic is going to be different based on how much travel is being used. And so spring rate, compression damping, um, and then uh, rebound. That's the way you should set up your suspension. And uh, travel indicators or anything that measures travel, um, please throw that away because the other misconception is the amount of travel being used is proportionate to the suspension performance. And that's, that's incorrect. So if I'm using 95% of my travel, then I'm 95% correct on my setup. And that's not the case. Stop, stop being concerned about how much travel you're being used or how much travel is being used. Be concerned about the quality of that travel that's being used. Yep. A lot of good advice there, I think. And I mean, speaking for me personally, I forks, especially the setups that I arrive at, I can almost never bottom them out. It's just like, I, I and a lot of that's sort of a preference for especially strong mid stroke support. And I just, I want to kind of chassis to stay flat and keep the bike up. And the end result of that is that I'm leaving 10 millimeters to travel or whatever on the table pretty much always. And that is completely fine. Well, and think, and think about it too, right? Um, we've all, well, most of us, I would say, have uh, hit something in our, our vehicle and bottomed out the suspension and how hard, you know, like harsh and chattery in the steering wheel. You're just like, oh, I mean, when that happens, right, you, you bottom out your car, you're like, oh, everybody feels it. So um, it's never a good thing. You know, bottoming is not something you want to do. And we measure bottoming in two zones. So we basically have soft bottoming and hard bottoming. And hard bottoming is something we want to save for a single event. So uh, for us, hard bottoming is uh, anything that exceeds 95% of travel. And so if you're exceeding 95% of travel, um, we don't ever really want to see that. But if it happens, you, you know, it, it's available. 85 to 95% is soft bottom. And you don't want to spend a lot of time there either. You know, it's bottoming is not a good thing. So using full travel is not necessary to have properly acting suspension. Because if you look at a 15 minute descent on your bike where you feel like you're really charging. If you actually look at the data that comes off of that, you'll have thousands and thousands and thousands of events that are over like a, it'll take a 160 fork. So over a, on a 160 millimeter travel fork, you'll have just thousands and thousands of events um, that are in and around 40 to 50 millimeters of travel. And then you'll have a half a dozen soft bottoming events and hopefully no hard bottoming events. And so when you look at setting up the suspension from a priority, do you want to set it up for the thousands and thousands and thousands of events? Or do you want to set it up for the half a dozen times you soft bottomed? It's like, no, you want to focus on the priority should be the, what we call the active, you know, ride percentage. So anyway, I could rant all day, but stop looking at how much travel you use. It's not a good gauge. And if you are using full travel, your setup's too soft. I think that was a pretty solid mic drop there. <laughs> in my opinion. Should I throw that, that in my opinion? <laughs> what do I know? Up to you. You can, <laughs> you can be as strident about it as you'd like. Yeah, I think that's 
that's really good advice there and good baseline for people to work with. So, Darren, this has been a lot of fun. I should probably let you get going here. But for one last question before we go, the podcast is called Bikes and Big Ideas after all. So we do like to wrap by asking the guests what their big idea is. So granted, starting push and all, everything you've been up to is probably qualifies as one. But if you had another big idea to share, what would it be? Um, I have a really big idea. Please. Perfect. Uh, actually, it's we have a really big idea that's shared company-wide at the moment and is a high priority around <laughs> here, but we're not ready to share it just yet. Damn. Well... <laughs> Fair enough. Anything a little lower profile then that you are ready to talk about? Big idea. I mean, I, I don't know if this qualifies for it. You know, one of the things that, yeah, <laughs> one of the things that we're really proud of, um, you know, and I, I always like to touch base on, it's not super important to all the people out there necessarily, but for us, you know, we are a very proud manufacturing company. We take a lot of pride in the fact that all of our products um, are manufactured uh, here in the U.S. and here in Colorado, you know, we have a, we did a really big uh, expansion to our manufacturing department a year ago. We're getting ready to do a second one right now, and um, yeah, we love high-end, state-of-the-art manufacturing and have a, an amazing team of of manufacturing people that execute. We have an amazing team here at Push. Period. You know, whether it's sales, um, tech support, our assembly, manufacture, every department here crushes it. You know, they really do have the minds of, of the best product, um, and customer satisfaction in mind. And so, uh, a big idea for us is, is our manufacturing group and our manufacturing team. Um, it's one thing to have parts made somewhere and then bring them in for assembly. And, uh, uh, that's, you know, for us, our DNA is, is manufacturing. So having eyes on our product through the entire process. And so I don't know if, uh, people realize, um, that we actually make all of this stuff too. It's not just a, just not just an assembly, but the manufacturing for us is a, is a was a big idea that we uh, executed and continue to. And yeah, it's it's awesome. I think we've kind of been seeing a little bit of a trend back towards that in the bike world in general. You know, this last couple of years of pandemic supply chain shenanigans have got people realizing that there are some real advantages to bringing stuff back near to where it's going to be used. And you guys have kind of been ahead of the curve on that. And we're seeing a swing back in that direction, which has been cool. Yeah. We have inventory and people, you can buy a shock today and get it in a week. It's like, that's unheard of in our industry. So <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been good. And, and, uh, yeah, you guys will see here shortly. We actually just, um, signed up, a with a new midsize OEM for the first time. So we've done a lot of boutique OEM work with, uh, Revel and evil gorilla gravity, etc. But, uh, yeah, we have a midsize company that's come on board and, and a lot of that's because of supply chain, you know, the fact that is that, you know, we have product and can build product. So, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting times, uh, for us as well. Very cool. Well, Darren, thanks again. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of good information in here and looking forward to seeing what else is coming in the pipeline there. So teased a little bit and we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Really, really appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Darren for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again real soon.